Now let's take our Bibles tonight and open them to John chapter number 14. John chapter number 14. I appreciate Brother Ken. I'm glad we can, we can enjoy ourselves in the house of the Lord. Amen. And, uh, he's talking about that, that woman that said, you know, said, y'all not laugh in church. And I thought to myself, I think I preached at her church before. Amen. <laughs> and, uh, it's, I tell you, man, I want to go to a place where I can have the joy of the Lord. Amen. And uh, the joy of the Lord's our strength. Uh, if you don't, if you don't have joy, you're not going to be a strong Christian. Uh, we need joy in our life. I'll tell you this, man, I, the, you take yourself too seriously in life. You're going to have a hard life. You'll find a lot more joy if you'll learn not to take yourself too seriously. And to enjoy, you say, preacher, ought we to take some things seriously? Yeah, we ought to take the Lord seriously. We ought to take the Word of God seriously. Uh, but who are we that we take ourselves so seriously? Amen. And uh, I tell you, I just, I don't like to surround myself with people that take themselves too seriously. Uh, because it don't take long, you'll offend them. Amen. It don't take long, they'll get all knotted up over something. And uh, I'd lot rather be with people that, that with a humble spirit know who they are in the Lord. Amen. Uh, you don't have to take me seriously, you ought to take him seriously. Amen. And uh, I just enjoy being in the house of God. Man, what a blessing that it is to be here. And uh, I trust that God's going to speak to your heart uh, this evening. John chapter number 14. I'd like to begin reading at verse number 1. John chapter number 14. Very, very familiar passage of Scripture. But I hope that we can uh, learn something of the Lord tonight in it and uh, let God speak to our hearts. John chapter 14. Verse number one. Now, if you're a student of the Bible, you you know the context here. Uh, you know that this is uh, just before our Lord will go to Calvary, and He knows that, and He has told His disciples that uh, they should know that. Although it's apparent from our text that they were still sort of struggling to grasp the reality of all that that would mean, and so He makes these statements in John chapter fourteen. He says, "Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in Me." In my father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. Whither I go, ye know, and the way ye know. Thomas saith unto him, Lord, we know not whither thou goest, and how can we know the way? Jesus saith unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. If ye had known me, ye should have known my Father also. And from henceforth ye know him and have seen him. Philip saith unto him, Lord, show us the Father, and it sufficeth us. Jesus saith unto him, Have I been so long time with you, and yet hast thou not known me, Philip? He that hath seen me hath seen the Father. How sayest thou then, show us the Father? Believest thou not that I am in the Father, and the Father in me? The words that I speak unto you, I speak not of myself, but the Father that dwelleth in me, he doeth the works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father in me. Or else, believe me for the very works' sake. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believeth on me, the works that I do, shall he do also. And greater works than these shall he do, because I go unto my Father. Whatsoever ye shall ask in my name, that will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Let's pray together. Father, we love you tonight. Thank you for the Word of God. Thank you for the house of God. Thank you for the Spirit of God. And thank you for the people of God. Lord, as as all that is gathered, assembled in this place, surely we can expect you to do great things in our midst. So may we come to you with an attitude and a heart of anticipation, Lord, of, of, of humble desire to see you work in our lives. And may you be glorified both through our obedience and uh, as we magnify you tonight in the preaching. We'll be sure to thank you for what takes place. Lord, we love you. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. As I said a moment ago, I think that we have a temptation when we read passages of Scripture, and particularly so those that are quite familiar to us, to somehow divorce them from the greater context of the Word of God. You've heard me say this before, and I'll just go ahead and be a broken record, say it again tonight. And I, I hate to give away the rest, but I'm going to keep saying this. If I pastor a thousand years, I'll keep saying it. Amen. If you don't know the Bible in context, you don't know the Bible at all. 
One of the chief duties of a student of the Word of God should always be to say, who is pinning this down? Who are they writing to? When is this being written? And what is the immediate purpose or context of the text that I am reading? And so when we come to John chapter 14, there's a lot of very, we could say, famous scriptures. Verse 1, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. That's a tremendous scripture. Uh, let's the child of God know that there's comfort to be found in believing in the Lord. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. And then he says, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Very famous passage of Scripture. Man, I'm glad he's preparing a place for you. Uh, listen, we could argue uh, for the rest until Jesus comes back, whether he's talking about a body or a building. But let me just tell you, at the end of the day, I'm glad he's preparing a place. Uh, we come a little further down into the text, and probably one of the most famous passages in all the Bible. Uh, verse 6, Jesus saith unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Very famous passage of Scripture, man. He doesn't just say, I'm a way. He says, I am the way. How much truth and clarity that's given to the people of God. But let me remind you tonight that all of these statements are part of a broader conversation that the Lord is having with his disciples. These are not just sort of proverbs that are that are dropped without any framework, but rather Christ is talking to his disciples about his impending departure, about really him going to the cross of Calvary and sort of the close of his earthly ministry. And he even reaches beyond that to the moment of his ascension, that he's he's going away, but he's coming about, coming back again one day. And this is a back and forth conversation that they're having with each other. And considering that, there is a part of this exchange that arrested my attention. I mentioned this, I probably mentioned it two or three times in preaching, that sooner or later I was going to preach on it. In case you ain't figured it out, now is both sooner and later and I'm preaching on it. Uh, but there's an interesting exchange in verses 8 and 9. Philip saith unto him, Lord, show us the Father, and it sufficeth us. Jesus saith unto him, have I been so long time with you, And yet hast thou not known me, Philip? What a penetrating question that that is. I want to preach to you on this thought tonight. Yet hast thou not known me. And I want to ask this question. How do we get to this place in our passage? Well, just by very brief way of introduction, let me say that the first three verses contain for us a statement of comfort. The Lord is encouraging his disciples and letting them know that his relationship with them will not cease whenever his earthly ministry ceases. Uh, They're getting ready to come into turbulent times in their lives. They're getting ready to go through some of the darkest hours that they would experience. Crisis of faith and angst of spirit. And so he says in verse 1, let not your heart be troubled. Ye believe in God, believe also in me. He talks a word of peace to them. Man, I'm glad in dark hours we can have peace in the Lord, aren't you? I'm glad we don't have to let our heart be troubled. I'm going to make a convicting statement to you, and I know it's convicting because it convicts me. We decide whether our heart's going to be troubled. God's never asked a man to do something that he could not do. He's never commanded something beyond the ability of of a person. And when he looks at these disciples and says, let not your heart be troubled, he is not setting a target beyond their reach. He's not setting a goal beyond their grasp. He's saying you get to decide whether your heart is troubled. Somebody's going to say, well, preacher, man, that's that's tough preaching. I mean, uh, there's times that my heart is troubled. Well, I'd agree. There's times my heart is troubled. What's the remedy? Do we just need to suck it up and do better? No. Do we just need to boil through and, 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 and change our circumstances and fix our... Pro- no, what do we need to do? He says this, you believe God, believe also in me. Amen. Can I tell you that faith, faith, faith is the answer to an anxious heart. Uh, listen, I and I understand, I want to be very careful with what I'm about to say. I understand that there's all sorts of medical and clinical reasons why people would, would uh, need things that modern science has provided for us to help them to be able uh, to keep a frame of mind. But I, I'm not saying all of that stuff is, is uh, somehow wrong or inappropriate, but I am saying this, without Christ, don't expect to have peace of mind. Don't expect to have peace of mind. Hey, listen, we get to decide if our heart is troubled. 
And how do we do that? We do it by believing in God. He speaks a word of of peace. Then he speaks a word of preparation. He says, I go to prepare a place for you. Man, what a comfort that is to the child of God in this day. Uh, We have drove our tent stakes too deep. I'm going to tell you in Western Christianity. Uh, Brother Bill made a comment the other day in Senior Saints, most profound thing I've heard in, in weeks, months. I, I've been, I've been in revival meetings, I've been in services, I, I've heard big name preachers preach, and the most profound thing that I've heard, I'm talking about in weeks or in months, was said over at our Senior Saints ministry. You wanna know what it was? He said, I don't care who's president anymore. Oh, <laughs> uh, son, that's some wisdom. I mean, that'll help your soul. <laughs> Uh, we live in a society uh, today where uh, we have drove our tent stakes so deep and then we live with constant anxiety about whether this world's going to fall apart. Let me go ahead and settle your mind. This world is going to fall apart. That's why our citizenship is in heaven. I'm glad he prepared a place for us. Verse 3, we see a word of promise. He said, if I go, and he did go, he said, if I go and prepare a place for you, here's what he said he'd do. He said, I will come again. And receive you unto myself. And where I am, there ye may be also. What comfort this must have been to these, these uh, angst-ridden disciples to hear. He was departing. He had been talking about leaving uh, for months on end. And really, in some ways, since the middle portion of his earthly ministry, he had been talking about leaving. And now they had come down to the very night. He had told them just a few days earlier, I go to Jerusalem, I'm going to be arrested, I'm going to be crucified, and I'm going to raise again the third day. They are literally at an inflection point in their relationship with him. What a comfort it must have been for him to say, I'm going away, but I promise I'm coming back. Listen, hey, the people of God have rested and pillowed their heads on that promise for 2,000 years now, knowing that he's coming back again. Man, I'm looking for the day that he comes. It could be today. You say, preacher, are you ready? Well, there's things I wish I had done better, and there's things I probably should do better. But if you're asking me if I'm attached to this world, no, I'm not attached to this world. I'm ready for the trumpet. Amen. I'm looking for the voice. I'm looking for the shout. He gives this statement of comfort. In response to this, in verse number four, Thomas makes a claim. And I want you to notice this sets forth the beginning of a pattern. We find that there are, are sort of, of uh, several claims that, that are made here in this passage. This is the first of them. And, and notice what happens. Christ says this. He says, whither I go, you know. He's talking about his crucifixion. He's saying, you know how this earthly ministry is, is going to conclude. You understand he had just told them just a few days earlier, I'm going to the cross of Calvary. He's saying, you know where I'm going. But then he says this, and the way, you know. Now, he's saying this, that the way he was going would make way for the way they would need to go. In other words, he's saying, you know where I'm going and you know why that's necessary, because the only way a man can have a relationship with the father is if they partake in the flesh and blood of the son. The only way that you can have a relationship with him is if I die in your stead and in your place. Thomas says this. Lord, we know not whither thou goest, and how can we know the way? Let me say it this way. They claimed to not know his path. I want you to stop and think about it. I understand that in the early days of our Lord's ministry, he did not talk about his crucifixion. I understand that even when he began to speak about it, he spoke about it privately first. But these men, Thomas and Philip, the other disciples, They've been with him from the earliest days of his earthly ministry. They have heard him say, I mean, several times recorded for us in Scripture, notwithstanding probably the many times that is not recorded for us, that our Lord looked at his disciples. We have this idea sometimes like they just couldn't have known. Yeah, they could have known. You know how they could have known? Because he told them over and over and over He said, I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm going to die. I'm going to be delivered into the hands of wicked men. They're going to nail me to a cross. And it's not that they didn't believe because they couldn't believe. It's that they didn't believe because they wouldn't believe. They struggled to accept what he was saying. Now, here's the thing that struck me. 
Isn't it amazing? There's two things being described here. The path of the Lord and the way for them as disciples. The path being to Calvary, His perfect, sinless, spotless life that would go to the cross of Calvary in a substitutionary death. And then, consequentially, their relationship to the Father through that sacrificial death. And Thomas, after three and a half years of walking with Him, of hearing every sermon, of seeing every miracle, he says, we just don't know what to expect. Can I say it's possible for the child of God to walk with God for lo these many long years and still just be slapped surprised at the way that God works. They claim to not know his path. And then the Lord in response to that gives, we have seen a statement of comfort. He then gives a statement of clarity in verses 6 and 7. Jesus saith unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Now, remember, there's a context here. Thomas is saying, we just don't know the way we're supposed to go. We just don't know what we're supposed to do. We don't know the way to get to God. Jesus says, you do know the way. I've been telling you the way all these many months. I am the way, Thomas. I'm the only way. I'm not just the way. I'm the truth. You say, we don't know. Well, here's how you can know. You can know the truth. And you say, well, how can we have life eternally? He says, well, I'm the life. If you have me, you have the life. He stresses this in verse 7. He says, if ye had known me, ye should have known my Father also. He is speaking dispensationally about some things that are about to shift in the way that the believer in God relates to God. And I don't want to be dismissive of that. That's why he says, from henceforth ye know him. And have seen him, what he's saying is from this time forward, you're going to know the Father like I know the Father. You're going to have relationship with him, the same that I'm in him and he in me. Well, you're going to be in us likewise. But here's what he's trying to get him to understand. You think you don't know, but you do know. He gives this statement of clarity. Verse number 8, Philip speaks up. He has a Peter moment and opens his mouth when no one addressed him. And Philip saith unto him, Lord, show us the Father. And it sufficeth us. Have you ever said something and then immediately known it was a dumb thing to say? I, on a continual basis, Fred, I feel that way, don't I? I mean, I just, I've gotten used to it by now. And Philip says this and immediately the Lord replies. And so let's say it this way. Verses 1 through 3 are a statement of comfort. They are responded to by this claim by Thomas to not know the Lord's path. In response to that, the Lord gives a statement of clarity in verses 6 and 7. And in response to that, we have a claim to not know his parent, his father, in verse number 8. And then the Lord, in one sweeping statement, gives a statement of condemnation, but he also reveals what is the fundamental flaw or deficit in their relationship. Jesus saith unto him, Have I been so long time with you, And yet hast thou not known me, Philip. In other words, they said, we don't know your path. They said, we don't know your parent. To that, the Lord say, you do know my path. I've been telling you, I am the way, the truth, and the life. They said, we don't know your parent. But he had already told them that if they had seen him, then they had seen God. And so here's what he reveals to Philip. In truth, the problem was they did not know his person. I'll tell you why this strikes me in my heart. I believe these men, in as much as we can use this language, are saved men. I understand the dispensational distinctions prior to Calvary and after the resurrection of our Lord. I understand the new birth. I mean, I'm not saying I understand everything about it, but I understand the fact that believers prior to the resurrection of the Lord were not indwelt by the Holy Spirit perpetually. They weren't regenerated, birthed into the family of God, made to be the sons of God. I'm aware of all those things. I've read theology books just like you, but in as much as we could say that these men had been justified, had had righteousness imputed unto them by their faith in the Lord, I believe that these men... Uh, excepting Judas, of course, I believe these men were what we could call saved men. And then beyond them simply knowing the Lord, they have for three and a half years walked, they've shared every meal, they've heard every sermon, and walked with the Lord. And the Lord looks at them and says, you know, all this time that we've been around each other, and it's like you don't know me at all. <laughs> 
Oh, my soul to think that we could walk with God and somehow still miss it and not know it. You know, there's a difference between knowing somebody and knowing somebody. There's people that you can say, hey, do you know this person? Especially in the day of social media that we're in, like, yeah, I know they exist. (laughs) You talk to the average person, especially down here in East Tennessee, and and you got to be careful with the language you use when you witness to people because they've done learned a lot of it. And you'll say things like, you know, are, are you saved? They know the answer to that. Yeah. Nobody wants to say I'm lost. Uh, they can be as lost as a man ever was, and they still know just by then of growing up adjacent in the shadow of a hundred church steeples. They know to say, yeah, I'm saved. If you ask them, you going to heaven when you die, they know to say yes. Because generally speaking, dying and going to hell is not a desirable thought. And so, you know, you have to be a little more deliberate in how you witness people. And here's what you'll find. You'll talk to people. You say, you know, have you ever been saved? They'll say, oh, yeah, I've been saved. And you'll say, uh, well, tell me how that happened. Tell me what happened to you. Or how did that happen in your life? And you'll get answers like, well, you know, my, my granddaddy was a, was a preacher or my uncle was a deacon or one time I was at a vacation Bible school, I went forward and then I filled out a card and everything. And, and, you know, sometimes they'll say, well, I've been baptized or I've had them say, well, I was sick in the hospital one time. A preacher came and prayed for me and I felt better. You know, a hundred million unbiblical answers regarding a person, uh, their salvation. And here's what you'll find. They know God like they believe he exists. Then there's people that you don't just know they exist. There's people that you know personally. There are people that if you went up to this happens to me all the time. People come up to me and they'll say, I met somebody that knows you. I never know how to react to that. Man, that could be okay, but sometimes that can be really bad. And I'll say, really, who, who are they? They'll give a name. That ain't nobody I know. And uh, a lot of times they then went on to ask for money from these people or something, you know. And and they'll describe and they'll say, oh, yeah, yeah, I know so-and-so. Yeah, I know so-and-so. And I'll say, man, I don't know them people. They say, if you give them money, go find them, hit them in the mouth, get your money back. I don't, man, I don't know those people. But then there's other people that, that, you know, I got a lot of friends and people that I meet. There's people that I know. And if you said the name Toby Weber, they'd know who I was. If you said their name to me, I, I know who they are. But even beyond that, we know one another. We have met. We have a relationship with each other. Let me say that. At bare minimum, every child of God knows the Lord in this way. You've met him personally. You have leaned upon him for your salvation. You've asked him to forgive you and save you. You have a personal, real relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. If you don't have that, man, stop everything. You need to get that right now. You That's the difference between heaven and hell. You have a personal relationship with him. But then let me go a step further. There's people that I know, I have a real relationship with them. If you were to ask them about me, they, they would confirm my existence. I would confirm theirs. They would, I hope, vouch for me, and I hope not tell too many awful things on me. We, we have a relationship. I know them. I'm around. But, but then there's people you know. I'm talking about you know their personality. I'm talking about you know their history. I'm talking about you know the things that they love and the things that they hate. And your relationship with them is not merely superficial, but it is thorough and it is exhausting. I know my wife that way. I know my kids that way. Some of you I know that way. Some of you I hope to know that that way one day. But there's a difference between just having a relationship and that relationship having a depth of meaning and of, of truth. Here's what I think the Lord's saying to Philip. I don't think he's saying, well, after all, Philip, you wasn't saved after all. I don't think that's what he's saying. I think he's looking at Philip and he's saying, man, how is it possible that all these years we've walked together and somehow you don't know who I am? You know that I'm the Savior. You know that I'm the Redeemer. You know that I'm God in the flesh. You know that I'm the Son of God. You know all these things about me, but somehow you've not learned anything about my person. And my personality. Man, it strikes conviction in my heart to think that I, saved 25 years, could still not really know him. And you know, most Christians walking around, I'm not saying they're not saved. I'm not saying their salvation is second class. What I am saying is they have a relationship with him, but they don't really know him well. Man, I want to know him well. I, I, I don't 
want to just barely know him. I mean, I, 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 I listen, I want to know him well. How can we do that? Well, I want you to notice a few simple thoughts, and I'll be done tonight out of this passage. Before we get there, let me give you an example of what I mean. In Ephesians chapter 4, Paul says this to the church at Ephesus. He says, This I say, therefore, in testifying the Lord, that ye henceforth walk not as other Gentiles walk, in the vanity of their mind, having the understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart, who being past feeling have given themselves over unto lasciviousness to work all uncleanness with greediness. Now, let's just stop there for a moment. Here's what Paul says. You ought to act different after you got saved from how you acted before you got saved. That immediately tells me two things. One, it's possible for saved people to behave like unsaved people. There's a whole group of people in the world think it is just a slap impossible for a saved person to act and behave like an unsaved person. I've read too much Bible to believe that. Hey, listen, I, I, I've seen the Apostle Peter uh, cuss his name and deny him thrice. I, I mean, listen, I, I've, I've seen too many moments when, when people in the Word of God uh, that, that knew the Lord, that loved the Lord, failed the Lord to believe that's not true. Uh, certainly, uh, that, that's true. A, a saved person can behave like an unsaved person. Here's another truth that teaches us they ought not to. It ain't the will of God for you to live that way. And here's how we know that. Listen to this next verse. Verse 20, he says this, But ye have not so learned Christ. If so be that ye have heard him and have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus. Paul says, you want to act like you do what Jesus would do, but is the way you're living how Jesus would be living. You, you, you want to claim the mantle in the name, and we talk all the time about taking the name of the Lord in vain, and I think that can refer to cussing. I'm against cussing, amen? I'm against taking the Lord's name in vain, using it as an oath and, and as a swear word. I don't think that honors the Lord, but I also think that commandment goes deeper than just the words that we speak. It denotes the idea of labeling ourselves a Christian, but not letting it have any meaningful impact in our conduct and in our behavior. And I think there's a great many people that walk around and say, oh yeah, I'm a Christian. But when you look at how Christ lived, they're not living how Christ lived. And Paul says, when you look at Jesus, is that what you've learned? Is that what you've learned him to be? And, 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 and is that how you've learned to behave? And so I think Paul is zeroing in on what the Lord was zeroing in on. He's not saying the church at Ephesus was lost, that they didn't know the Lord in salvation. But he was saying that you've learned how he is and you're not living that way. You're living as though you have no clue about the Savior that you're claiming. I wonder how many of us are, are an embarrassment to God. He loves us. Don't, don't fault him for that. But I wonder how many of us are an embarrassment. There's things that my kids do that I think, boy, that's mine. And then there's things that they do. We see all the parents do this on Sunday nights. We all, we all do this. We all have this same. You ever seen them meerkats on the Discovery Channel? The meerkats. You know what I'm talking about? And, the kids will be over there just going crazy, you know, burning everything down, Lord of the Flies. And then all of a sudden you'll hear it, you know, it'll, it'll be it'll, it'll be one of these. And all the parents will do the same thing. They'll do this right here. And then all but one of them will go and sit back down. You know what they're saying? Wasn't mine. <laughs> and sit back. There's sometimes my kid does things and I think, oh, my. <laughs> I hope people don't know. That's it. That, that's her son, all right? And then there's times they do things and I have to say, yeah, that's mine. Because the way they're behaving is far too close to how their daddy behaves for me to try to deny it. I think there's a lot of times probably undoubtedly, I mean, he's our father. I wonder how often he's embarrassed our behavior. How many times have you as a parent looked at your child and say, is that what I taught you? And the Lord is looking at Philip and he's saying, is that what I taught you? Paul's looking at the church at Ephesus. He's saying, is that what God taught you? He's saying, no, you're acting like you don't know him at all. Look back at our text tonight. Notice these three thoughts. I'll be done. I, I keep saying that and you keep believing it. And as long as you keep believing it, I'll keep saying it. Look with me first off at verse number nine. I, I would say this. There are three areas of our Lord's life and ministry 
that they had been a part of, that they were familiar with, but they had not learned of him from. Notice verse number nine. The Lord says this, have I been so long time with you and yet hast thou not known me, Philip? He that hath seen me hath seen the father. How sayest thou then, show us the Father? What does he mean when he says, has seen me? He's talking about men observing his manner of life. Let me say it this way. In all this time they had spent with him, they had not learned of him from his walk. There's sometimes that people behave in a certain way that takes us by surprise. But generally speaking, if you have even the the slightest of a perspective that's correct about human fallen nature and about the behavior of men, most people behave in predictable ways. You can see a pattern in their life and you can understand what they're prone and predisposed to do in a given situation. And they had for three and a half years walked with him, but they still had not learned anything from observing his life. He speaks of three things. Notice number one, he speaks of his continual presence with them. Philip, have I been so long time with you? They hadn't just casually spent time together, but these men had literally lived their lives in constant company one with another. So much so that there are only just a few moments in the record of the Gospels when they are not with the Lord. It was a greater exception and rarity for them to not be with the Lord than it was for them to be with the Lord. They had had plenty of opportunity to observe His walk. Can I tell you this? A blessed truth of New Testament Christianity. We spend more time with Him than they do. Let me say it again. We spend more time with Him than they do. Hey, listen, I mean, you say, how is that, preacher? Well, because we are perpetually, continually indwelt by the Spirit of God. He's going to denote here in a few moments that the miraculous things that he does are done by the Father. And they are exercising his life how? Well, they're done through the Spirit. Uh, The reason we know that, he didn't perform a single miracle until after the Spirit of God had rested upon him at his baptism at the River Jordan. Immediately following that, in John chapter number 2, it says this beginning of miracles did Jesus at a wedding feast in Cana of Galilee. And so the things that he did, he did by the Spirit of God, but he did through the power of the Father. And that same Spirit of God indwells you and me as believers. He'll go on to describe how that greater works would we do because he goes to his Father and we're left behind here. We're indwelt by the Spirit of God. We spend more time with Him than disciples do. We see His continual presence. And then notice His clear presentation to them. He says to Philip, He that hath seen me hath seen the Father. There could be no stronger language denoting the divinity of Jesus Christ. You cannot read that with with common sense and with an honest perspective and not walk away understanding that he is claiming deity to himself. He that hath seen me hath seen the Father. That, by the way, was the outrageous thing that caused finally the Pharisees to to make the decision to execute him. Because they said he makes himself to be God. Well, he was God. It's funny how wrong man's perspective is because they said he's a man. And he's acting like he is God. No point in fact, uh, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and became obedient uh, even unto death. In fact, he was God who then walked in flesh and took upon him humanity. They had a completely wrong perspective about who he was. But that was the thing that was so outrageous to them. Because all in their long history of religion throughout the Old Testament, one of the things that was a foreign concept to them was the notion of God being their father. They couldn't call God their father. They simply thought it's because they didn't have an advanced enough revelation of religion. In fact, Christ points to the fact it was because God wasn't their father. John chapter number 8. But irrespective, we find that whenever the Lord comes, He starts talking about how that He is God. That him and the Father are one. And he says to his disciples that if you want to know who God is, if you want to know how God behaves and what God would do, you can observe and behold my actions. And through that, gain an understanding of who God is. If you've seen me, Philip, you've seen the Father. But then notice their clouded perception of him. And sayest thou, how sayest thou then, show us the Father? 
Isn't it amazing, man? We as Christians, how many times do we walk around and we say, I just wonder what God would think about that. We're making a decision in life. We're going out and buying a car, buying a house, whatever it might be. And we talk about God like he ain't around. Boy, I just wish I knew what the Lord wants in this. Have you asked him? Have you asked him? You know, funny thing about it, Job may have not been able to find him, but praise God, we can find him. We know where he's at. We can talk with him. We can speak with him. Here's what I'm trying to get you to understand. It was not a failure on the part of the Lord in communicating the personhood of God to them. But rather it was a failure on their part in receiving that revelation and that truth and willing to, in simple faith, appropriate that into their own lives. The fact of the matter is, you want to know who God is, how God behaves? You want to know what God would do? He's written a whole book of his mind and his heart to communicate it to you. You say, preacher, I might misunderstand it. Well, that's why he's given us the indwelling spirit of God, who is our teacher, that self-same anointing. And you say, well, preacher, I, I still might get it wrong. Well, that's why he's given us a local church, given us a pastor to preach the word of God and people around us that teach the word of God to us. Hey, we are without excuse when it comes to this matter of learning of him from his wall. Then look with me at verse number 10. Christ makes a second statement regarding this. He he says this, it's simple. He says, believest thou not that I'm in the Father and the Father in me? You ever had a moment when you was a child when you could tell by the tone of your parents' question that it was about to get rough? They ask you things like, like, are you stupid? It It never goes well. It don't matter how you answer. It does not go well from that moment forward. Or things like this, what were you thinking? I've never had anybody ask me what was I thinking that I had a good answer to that. In fact, it's always the same answer. I wasn't. (laughs) And when the Lord asks this question, believest thou not that I am in the Father and the Father in me? You've heard me say this before, but every question Christ ever asked was rhetorical. In fact, it was impossible for him to ask a question that was not rhetorical. He's God. He knows all things. And when he asks this question, it's not because he needs an answer. It's because he wants Philip to have to answer it for himself. He says this, the words that I speak unto you, I speak not of myself, but the father that dwelleth in me, he doeth the works. Let me say this, not only they had not learned of him from his walk, but number two, they had not learned of him from his words. I wonder how many sermons they had heard in that three and a half years. I wonder how many times they had heard him say, in no uncertain terms, I and my Father are one. We know of at least one occasion. It's in John chapter 10, verse 30. The Lord says it verbatim in those words. I and my Father are one. In other words, we see in this question that he asks the substance of his words. Philip, I am the Father. The Father is me. We are one in the same. Now, lest you think this leads to a sort of oneness Pentecostal perspective, the Lord gives us that glimpse at the River of Jordan when the the Trinity of God expresses itself distinctly and individually, the voice speaking from heaven, the Spirit resting as a dove, and the Son coming up out of the water. But what He is saying to them is this, I have been telling you this entire time that when I speak, I'm speaking the words of God. And he's saying to them, you've missed the substance of what I've been saying. It's amazing the things people ascribe to God. It's amazing the things that people say are in the Bible that are not in the Bible. It'll surprise you if you ever read your Bible. (laughs) Heaven help Western Christianity when that's what the preacher's preaching on. It'd shock you if you ever read that book. (laughs) Hey, listen, the Catholics didn't have to rob it from us and the Marxists didn't have to burn it out. We just put it on the coffee table and quit opening it. You'd be shocked if you ever read that Bible at the things that man says are there that are not there and at the things that God put there that man refuses to talk about. He points to them that this is no hidden secret. The substance of his words have been continual and consistent. But then he goes a step further. And he denotes the source of his words. He says this, the words that I speak unto you, I speak not of myself. 
Now, he's not saying he didn't talk about himself. He'll later on describe how that, that though he did not testify of himself, that the, the comforter that would come would speak of him. That, by the way, is a good indication of, of the, the fraudulent nature of the charismatic movement because it, it glorifies the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit won't glorify the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will always speak of Christ and glorify Christ. And, and the charismatic movement ain't about Christ, it's about the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit. So the Spirit they're talking about ain't the Spirit of God, because the Spirit of God don't want to be talked about. He wants to talk about Jesus. But when the Lord says, I speak not of myself, what He's saying is, the words that I speak are not of me. They're not my words, they're His words. We know that, because He says, but the Father dwelleth in me, He doeth the works. In other words, he speaks of the source of his words as divine. Now, some of y'all are thinking, preacher, it's a Sunday school lesson. I'm going to preach here in just a moment. Listen to what John 5, 26, 27 says. Christ makes this statement, For as the Father hath life in himself, so hath he given to the Son to have life in himself, and hath given him authority to execute judgment also, because he is the Son of Man. In other words, he says, I have the authority given from God to execute judgment. Down in verse 30 of that chapter, this is what he says. I can of mine own self do nothing. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is just because I seek not mine own will, but the will of the Father which hath sent me. When are we going to get it in our head that this book, this whole book, in its right context and rightly divided, is the whole Word of God. Isn't it funny how we can treat the Bible as just sort of a... And this is part of my problem. I'm not against devotionals. We wrote little sort of daily devotional things. I'm not against those things necessarily. But there is a great danger. And by the way, this is true for notes on, on Scripture pages. I've got a Schofield Bible up here. Not because I agree with Schofield, but because I like always being able to find everything on the same page, no matter which Bible I'm carrying. But but one of the great dangers in, in, in placing things on the page of Scripture, or one of the great dangers, I think, in, in using devotional, sometimes we get to forgetting that that ain't this. And we get to where we... It's not that we elevate that. It's that we demote this. And we begin to view this as just sort of, uh, you know, uh, uh, sort of a, a book of, uh, of fables and truths and, and proverbs in the sense of catechisms and, and wholesome and healthy sayings to make one healthy and wealthy and wise. And we lose the reverence we ought to have for the Word of God. He says, you've done forgot whose words I'm speaking, Philip. And then he speaks of the evidence of his words. He says, but the Father that dwelleth in me, he doeth the works. Now, wait a minute. I thought he was talking about words. Yeah, but his words work. His words were not just precepts. They were power. He said, the words that I speak to you, they are spirit and they are life. Denoting that they're not just merely the communication of thoughts, but that they in a proprietary sense have the ability to transform the world around us. Here's what it all comes down to. They had heard sermon after sermon, lesson after lesson, and somehow in the midst of all of it, they had lost sight of the high, holy, unique, precious, peculiar nature of the words that he was speaking. Can I tell you one of the great dangers in Christian life is that we get bored with the Bible. A lot of churches are focused on entertainment. I think you can tell, man, you can come to one of our services and tell we like to enjoy ourselves. But one of the great dangers, we're entertaining a generation to hell. We we have a society that is not bent upon spiritually feeding sheep, but instead carnally entertaining goats. And we're living in a world today where entertainment has replaced edification. We live in a world today where smoke and mirrors has replaced uh, the Scripture and the message of God. And as such, we are watching a whole generation lose their reverence for the Word of God. But can I tell you, these words, their spirit and their life. And one of the great dangers is that as the people of God, we'll grow bored with the Bible. I remember, I don't... The people that I believe are heretics, that it would matter for me to call out, you don't know. And the people that you know that I call out as heretics, I'm kind of bored doing because everybody knows they're heretics. All right. 
But Rick Warren said a few years ago, I just, I say that to say it's not even controversial anymore. It's just boring. Everybody knows Rick Warren is, is a heretic. And if you don't know he is, you know that he is now. All right. And uh, you'll have to drive your purpose some other place. And, but the Rick Warren said uh, several years ago, he said, we cannot expect to reach a generation with preaching and 400 year old English. That's what he said. He said that. I may not have had it verbatim, but I'm, I'm in the ballpark. Go read it if you like the guy. And if that don't bother you, then uh, I'm sorry. It should bother you. And the, the, the spirit behind that was this. We've got bored with the Bible. But can I tell you something? Hey, there's a lot of people sitting with the King James Bible under their arm in independent Baptist churches that have likewise grown bored with the Bible. How do you know, preacher? Because they don't read it. And when they read it, they don't really learn it. And when they learn it, they don't obey it. The fact is, they had heard all his teachings and they still missed the point. Notice the third thing and I'm finished. Verse 11. He says this. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father in me. By the way, that ought to be enough. His word ought to be enough. He's never broken his word. But he says, or else believe me for the very work's sake. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believeth on me, the works that I do shall he do also, and greater works than these shall he do, because I go unto my Father. And whatsoever ye shall ask in my name, he says, that will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If verse number 9 deals with his walk, how they had seen him live, and in verse number 10 deals with his words, the things that he had spoken to them, verses 11 through 13, they deal with his works. The miracles that the Lord had performed. And here's what he's saying. You know, you've seen me do all these wondrous things. And it's like you still haven't learned anything about me. Despite all that you've seen me do. He speaks first off about the proof of his works. (laughs) I like how he says it in verse 11. Believe me that I'm in the Father and the Father in me. Believe me because I've told you that's true. And he's never lied to us. So why wouldn't we believe him? But then he says, I guess if you're struggling with that, you know, you could look at Lazarus. (laughs) <laughs> I guess if you're struggling with that, uh, you could remember the five loaves and the two fishes. I guess if you're struggling with that, you could remember the night I calmed the stormy sea. You could go talk to Jairus' daughter. You could go find the widow woman of Nain and talk to her son that was raised from the dead. I, I guess if you're still struggling with that, you could go and find the man they let down through the thatched roof in Mark chapter number 2. I guess if you're having a problem believing me, you could go and talk to the maniac of Gadara who's now clothed and whole and sound and in his right mind. I guess you could talk to all those that I've cast devils out of and all those that I've loosed the tongues and give strength to their legs. Go find the left that I've uh, cleansed their body. Go find the blind that I've opened their eyes. Believe me for the work's sake, he says. If you're having trouble believing what I say, he says, go look at what I've done. What does his work prove? Well, it proves who he is. It proves that he is who he says he is. And if he is who he says he is, that ought to be enough. But here's what they had missed. They thought that was all merely a spectacle. But verse 12, he reveals that the performance of his works would not be limited just to himself. But as the Father had worked through him, so likewise the Father desired to work through them. He said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that believeth on me, the works that I do shall he do also. And greater works than these shall he do, because I go unto my Father. A lot of people have missed what Christ explicitly says there. He says, the works that I do shall these do also. And uh, they did in the book of Acts. In the book of Acts, the very things that our Lord had done, we find the apostles doing during that transitional period and giving veracity, authenticity to the New Testament church and, and, and to New Testament Christianity. You say, what about us, preacher? Are we going to do those very same things? I've never cast out a devil. I've never healed the blind. I probably made a few go blind. I've never given strength to broken legs. And by the way, all those TV preachers ain't never done that either. Because if they did, hey, listen, if they had done those things, it'd be them worth a hundred billion dollars and own Twitter instead of a South African billionaire. If they could do all those things, they'd be the ones running the hospitals. They ain't done those things either. So what do we do? Well, we do greater works. Preacher, greater works. Greater works than casting a devil out of somebody? Oh, sure. 
When you win somebody to Christ, not only do the devils depart, but the Spirit of God indwells. Preacher, greater, greater things than these? Oh, oh, sure. We don't, we don't open the physical eyes of the blind, but we do something that, that not even was done in that miracle. We open the spiritual eyes of those that have been blinded by the God of this world. On and on I could go. Here's the point behind it. It's in this dispensation that we're doing greater works than these. Why can we do that? Because he's gone to his Father. And he sits at the right hand of the Father, and he ever liveth to make intercession for us to the uttermost. And he empowers and enables us to be used of God, to share the gospel, to see lives transformed. But here's the thing. How could we say we believe all that if we won't do our part in that? If we believe we can do greater works, and that those greater works are done through the propagation of the gospel, why don't we tell people? Mm. We see the proof of his works, the performance in verse 13 says this. And whatsoever ye shall ask in my name, he says, that will I do that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Oh boy, hey listen, the charismatics love that verse because they misapply that verse. They misapply that verse. Uh, Funny thing about it, you know, sometimes they get sick too. Sometimes they get sick too. Uh, why Why couldn't they heal their marriage? Why couldn't they heal their broken body? Why couldn't heal their sick child? Why couldn't they heal... Why couldn't they heal the financials of their ministry when they finally got caught grifting and stealing from people? No, see, the fact is, people have taken that to suggest that that has made God our butler, our bellhop. We just tell him to do what to do, and he'll do it. But no, that's not what he says. He says, in my name. In my name. See, here's the thing. If you do something in my name, it's got to be what I want. If you do something in my name, it's got to be what I want. If if, if if after church, you used to go over there and, and you used to tell them, say, well, Brother Toby said this. Brother Toby better have said it. Or Brother Toby's going to say something. It's got to have been the communication of my wishes. Same thing for you. If somebody was to say, well, so-and-so wants or so-and-so said or so-and-so thinks, they better have said or wanted or thought or you're lying. You know why? If it's not what they want, it's not in their name. And here's what he's saying. He's saying, when you submit yourself to my will and my wants, then I can begin to do remarkable things in your life. Why does it have to be that way? Well, notice the purpose of his works, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. There's a lot of things out there that people name and claim that Jesus is going to do that God wouldn't get an ounce of glory out of, but really a lot of shame and reproach if God did fulfill that. But you see, all that the Son wants is what's going to glorify the Father. We say, oh, preacher, I know him. I've been saved 20 years. I've been saved 40 years. I've been saved 60 years. I know him. Do you know him? I don't doubt that you are known of God. I don't doubt that he knows you. I'm not doubting your relationship with him. I'm asking this question. Does the way you're living bespeak the fact that you know him personally? If not, hey, listen, you ought to commit in your heart, commit in your life that you're going to live in a way that people don't have to wonder if you're a Christian. They can tell you know God. They can tell because your your opinion is God's opinion. Your perspective is God's perspective. That's what being a Bible-believing Christian is. We throw that term around. I'm a Bible believer. I'm a Bible believer. Well, are you? Does your life line up with this Bible? If not, you're not a Bible believer. Or at least you're certainly not a Bible liver. <laughs> well, to be a Bible believer, if it's not true in any area of your life, let's, let's make it true tonight as we submit ourselves to the Lord. Let's bow together. As a musician comes to play, the altar's open. I'll not be the Holy Ghost. I'll not ask you a hundred questions and try to figure. I'll just ask you this. If God dealt with your heart, would you meet him down in the altar? Let him have his will and his way. I trust if there's somebody here that's lost, that's not saved, that you know that it'd be in your interest to have somebody take a Bible and show you how to be saved. And we'll meet you in this altar if that's true of you. But knowing we're gathered here on a Sunday night, likely mostly, if not all, with the people of God, I'm just going to ask you to be obedient to the Holy Spirit if he dealt with you about an area of your life. Is your life not lining up? If it's not, you ought to get it in line with his. Father, bless this invitation. Oh, may it magnify the Lord. May we be obedient. May Christ be glorified. We ask it in his name.